Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. With mental health being at the forefront of our attention in 2020, next to COVID, have you ever wondered how the work of a psychiatrist looks like? Many clinicians fear psychiatric drugs, but Ronnie Shiloh firmly believes that the fear is unnecessary. Ronnie is an MD specialized in psychiatry by background. He headed a closed psychiatric department, was chief psychiatric officer at a large Israeli HMO, as well as a senior lecturer in Tel Aviv University in Israel. He then worked in the pharmaceutical industry before starting his own startup Signal, which offers clinicians decision supports in medication prescribing. The system takes into account many of patients' variables to be as accurate as possible and, more importantly, for the decision support to not overwhelm the doctor with alerts. Electronic prescribing and medication management are very complex and plagued with errors, which I tried to outline in the documentary Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? If you haven't seen the movie yet, find the link in the show notes or find the version adapted for radio in one of the previous episodes of this podcast. A few of Ronnie's statements from this interview are also in the movie. But to go to today's discussion, I asked Ronnie how the work of a psychiatrist looks like, what are the challenges related to medications in psychiatry, and we also talked about why are decision support systems for medication prescribing currently still mostly frustrating for the users. Various research papers show that 90-96% to 96% of alerts get ignored. You'll be able to hear a little bit more about that in one of the upcoming episodes with the pioneering researcher in the field of the impact of IT on medical professionals, Dr. David W. Bates from Harvard. But now, let's go to the discussion with Ronnie. Ronnie, let's start with your work in the clinical practice. You headed a closed psychiatric department. And for the general population, I guess the psychiatric departments are more or less something we know from the movies. We know that they're scary. We know that people get in there without having an option to go out. So maybe let's start a little bit with that. Can you describe how work in that kind of a department looks like and how far is it from the movie reality? <laughs> oh, it's very... Working in a psychiatric department, I was working uh, uh, and, and afterwards managing a very big academic psychiatric department in Israel. And I must say that working in psychiatry is... 180 degrees different than what the general population and even the medical people perceive. One of the things that might surprise listeners is the fact that psychiatry is much more accurate than many other medicines or fields in medicine. 
We always think that, for example, I don't know, treating diabetes, heart disease, internal medicine practicing, etc., it's a relatively accurate practice. You have lab results, you have uh, CTs, ultrasounds, uh, blood tests, etc. And in psychiatry, it seems that things are much more fluid, but it's, that's not the case. If you are speaking about the ability to correctly diagnose people, to understand what they have, and the ability to correctly treat people, it's much more feasible and accurate in psychiatry than in many other fields in medicine. And this is something that surprises people. And another thing that comes with it is the fact that people always think that when you enter, I, I was heading a, as I mentioned, a closed psychiatric department. This is where all the difficult cases come in. People with very low, very acute exacerbations and, and suffering and things like this. And the general perception is that if you are such a person, you enter a psychiatric department and you stay there for years and nothing changes. And the reality is that in modern days, in the most acute departments, acute cases, the toughest things, people come in, stay for 10, 15, 20 days at the most, and they are discharged in 95% of the times as healthy as a person can be. And this is uh, very surprising to people who do not practice psychiatry. Why is the field more accurate, as you mentioned? How come it's more accurate? What makes it? What enables the uh, higher level of accuracy of the field? It depends. This is a little bit of, I think we are going a little bit to philosophy, but I'll try to at least explain my view. In medicine, when you think of accuracy and treatment, basically you need to focus or to be in control of two pathways. One, make a correct diagnosis. And two, treat the disorder or whatever the person has and make him feel better. And the more accurate these two or the more these two pathways are executed in a timely and accurate manner, this is what I perceive as a more of an accurate medicine. I'll translate it into simpler uh, wording. Basically, let's take, a, let's take an example. If you're taking a person that has diabetes, if you're at the right age and many of the population suffer from type 2 diabetes. So the general perception is that, wow, it's very easy to diagnose. That's right. But is it easy to treat? Do you, by giving the right treatment, either insulin or other anti-diabetic medications, do you resolve the problem? Do people live much longer before, because you treat them? These are the right 
questions and answers that needs to be answered. And in psychiatry, the ability to correctly diagnose, to correctly treat, and to resolve the exacerbations or the disorders is much higher than in many other fields of medicine. Uh, it's not intuitive to think that way, but this is how I look at it. But I think psychiatry, especially depression, is known as one of the healthcare problems that affects the quality of life of people also because it takes so long to figure out which medication is right for the right patient. So there's trial and error approach that works, but it means that you have to go on a drug, use it for a month or so, and then if it doesn't work, go a diff on a different drug. And knowing how deafening depression is for an individual, it's, it takes a really long time from the moment that you feel bad to the moment that you feel better. And I wonder, because I saw that there's startups, there's ideas about using pharmacogenomics in order to um, di uh, diagnose which medication would be appropriate for a, a patient faster. How far is that in clinical practice that it's used on a daily basis? I think one of the misconceptions about psychiatry and, and depression, as, as you mentioned, is the issues that, that you mentioned. The problem with depression is to correctly diagnose a depression. In a psychiatry, we know that there are various types of depressive, would say, modes or feelings, etc. Many of those are not illnesses, are not disorders. I'll give you a simple example. Let's suppose that you as a person is very sad because you were or about to be fired from your beloved job or you are getting a divorce or I don't know what happens. You're beloved dog just passed away and you are very sad this is not what we in psychiatry call depression or the, the right term is major depression this is by the way a very healthy feeling if something bad happens to you you should be sad if you are not sad you're something is wrong with you in various cases. Now, what we call depression, or as I mentioned earlier, major depression, is actually a physiological-based disorder. We know today what happens in the brain that starts the cascade that only one of the parameters is being depressed or sad. But there are many other parameters, such as inability to sleep, for example, inability to eat, for not for half a day, sometimes for days and weeks. Now, we all from, this is a, an example that I always tell people. When we were, let's say, in high school, etc., and we were, we loved to have fun, go out and not sleep for, for the entire night, 
and go over to the next day, etc., with friends. We all managed to do it. That was fun. But do you recall somebody not sleeping for two consecutive days? Maybe, maybe, very rare. Do you recall anybody not sleeping for three consecutive days? Four consecutive days? Two weeks? This, for one example, what happens in major depression or could happen. Although you are tired, although you are urging to sleep, you cannot. And this is physiological. Same thing with eating. You may experience uh, a day of fasting from time to time, not wanting to eat, get, you know, get slim, get nicer, or doesn't have a chance. Okay, you can survive. Or you can, let's say, easily pass a day 24 hours without eating. Can you pass 48 hours without eating? Can you pass 72 hours without eating? The only way we can do it if it's a physiological problem. And this is what happens in major depression. For example, so major depression is an holistic physiological disorder that only one of its, would say, characteristics is being sad or being uh, depressed. But there are a lot of physiological characteristics that, goes with, that go with it. And only if you have the entire, let's say, package, only then we can, we can accurately say that this is a major depression. And only then such kind of a depression responds to medications. Because medications usually do not help healthy people. If you are sad because you lost a good friend, no medication would ever help you. That's a healthy feeling to be sad. You don't need medications, and medication will not help you for this. So the basic issue with major depression is because too many depressed situations are considered as depressions, and people are getting more and more Prozacs and all the various antidepressants, etc., with the hope that they, it will help them. But this is nonsense in many cases. So what is the role of solutions for better prescribing of antidepressants? So it's one thing to diagnose depression in the right way, but are the genetic approaches to prescribing medications helpful to get to the right drug faster? Okay, so this is getting interesting. You ask, if I have a depressed uh, patient in front of me, how should I look at the, the patient's And this is a very... I would say, challenging and interesting situation, and I'll try to explain. Generally speaking, I, you may know there are about, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 different types of molecules that are aimed to treat depression. 
So if I have a depressed patient in front of me, theoretically, I can choose one of the 40 different medications. And theoretically, each one of the 40, not theoretically, practically from clinical studies and, and et cetera, et cetera, each one of the 40 types of medications theoretically and practically has the same chance to resolve the depression in the patient as any other of the 40 medications. So if I need to choose one medication, the probability that it will help faster, better than the other medication is basically not there. It's similar chances. So why to choose one instead of the other? And here where things get complicated, much more complicated. And by the way, this is what brought me at the end of the day to what I do today, Signal. We'll probably talk about this in, in, later, in later stages, but the, at least from my point of view, where my current career started when I was a psychiatrist, I had the dilemma, which medications to give to which patients out of, as we mentioned, theoretically, a pool of medications that all look and feel, theoretically, look and feel the same. And things are complicated because, one, each medication has a very, may have a very different side effect profile. And I'll explain. For example, we mentioned earlier that people, depressed people, do not sleep as well. They want to sleep. If that's the case, maybe it's better to give them an, anti, an antidepressant medication that on one hand will help them with resolution of the depression, and on the other hand will help them if they take it before going to bed, for example, will help them sleep better. Bottom line, it might be better to give them a sedative antidepressant, meaning it will help them sleep better. One option. Another option would be, if this is a patient, by the way, I don't know how much you are aware of, but major depression has a very wide incidence and prevalence among the general population. A lot of people suffer from major depression. And many of them have, naturally, other disorders. Hyperlipidemia, high blood pressure, cardiac disorders, things like this, if they're old enough, etc., etc. So let's suppose that I'm speaking about this patient that I want to make him sleep better. I give him a sedative antidepressant. By the way, it usually comes because they tackle certain receptors in the brain, which calls cholinergic, cholinergic receptors. And these are anticholinergic properties of, of such medications. So being anticholinergic, for example, makes you sleep better. But 
it makes me, on the other hand, much more vulnerable for cardiac arrhythmias. So if you suffer from a heart disease or cardiac arrhythmias, I'll be doing a stupid thing to give you a medication that may exacerbate your cardiac arrhythmias, etc., etc. So there are a lot of things to, to consider. And another thing that people may notice is that, and it's true not only for psychiatric patients, it's true for a lot of patients, that when you get to a certain age, you are treated by a lot of medications. Six, seven, eight, one for blood pressure, one for uh, heart disease, one for diabetes, etc., etc. Now, the one, one, one doctor gives you the medication for your blood pressure, the other one for your diabetes, the third one for your glaucoma, the fourth one for your psychiatric disorder, etc., etc. And in most cases, they don't talk with each other. They give you their medication and say, goodbye, be well. And all of a sudden, you as a patient get four, five, six, seven medications that each one of them was given by another physician, but none of them looked at the overall picture of what they do with one another. Do they interact with one another? Do you, on one hand, help your patient, but on the other hand, because you give him a certain medication, you can kill him due to another thing that, that it causes or to another disorder that the patient suffers from. And basically, because I'm dealing with a lot of psychiatric patients, which many of them use many medications, two, sometimes two, three medications for their psychiatric disorder, and another one or two for the diabetes and for their blood pressure, etc., etc. At the end of the day, they were getting seven, eight, nine medications. I started understanding that, as people say in, in, in NASA, Houston, you, we have a problem because people are getting more and more None, or it could be that many of them interact with one another or do not interact with the patient himself. We, which kind of brings us to technology. So Israel has had a digital infrastructure in healthcare for a very long time. You've got electronic uh, health records for decades. And I wonder to which extent does that give you access to the information of the patient to know which medications he's taking, even though he's treated in different institutions? So I think that practicing in Israel did two things to me. And I'm speaking 15, 20 years ago. On one hand, we were, I think, at that time, one of the most advanced countries, if not the most advanced, in digitalizing all patient population. If you were looking at a patient, you knew exactly what the patient gets and what he got in the ambulatory services and what he got in the hospital and, and what he gets when he's discharged. And you knew exactly all the relevant data about the patient. 
everything was computerized. Uh, back, and I'm talking 20 years ago, everything was computerized and, and well put in front of you as a clinician. So on this part, excellent. But the other thing is that we started using electronic health records and we started using solutions that aimed or targeted dealing with drug-related problems, drug interactions, the appropriateness of certain medications to people, etc., etc. And we, because we were so computerized, etc., we started using what was back then, and, and again, in these days as well, the leading solutions in the world that dealt with drug interactions. And as I mentioned, in psychiatry, the, the, in a lot of the medical fields, there's a lot of issues with that. I don't know if people know, but about 10% of all hospitalizations in developed countries are due directly to drug interactions and drug-related problems. People, 10% of the people are not hospitalized because of their illness. They're hospitalized because something is wrong with their medications. They interact with one another. They are not fit for this specific patient. You mentioned genomic uh, a few minutes ago. I'll give you an example. There are certain... I'm not sure we want to go into very fine-tuned details, but I'll tell it high level. Certain genetic aspects of each one of us govern how medications are managed in our body. When a doctor prescribes 100 milligram of a certain medication, making it very simple, the doctor expects that if he prescribes 100 milligrams and you as a patient, you swallow the tablet, the 100 milligram tablet, 100 milligram will reach your bloodstream. And this will be the concentration in the blood. I'm very simplifying the issue. And this is why when a pharma company says that the needed dose is 100 milligrams per day, it's because they expect that if you get, as a patient, 100 milligrams, 100 milligrams will reach your various relevant organs, the heart, the brain, kidney, whatever. But in about 30% of the people, because of various genetic variations that are now very easy to know about, it wasn't like this five years ago, but now it is, We'll speak about this later. But in 30% of the people, if I would know the patient's genetic profile, I will immediately change the medications because of two options. One is that because the specific patient genetics, on one hand, can either cause the drug to be toxic in very high levels. So if I, as a doctor, prescribe 100 milligrams, it's as if the patient would get 500 milligrams. 
four, five, six times more than I actually prescribed due to various genetic aspects. Or, and in this case, this could be very harmful, side effects and morbidity, mortality, etc. Or the opposite can happen, that due to various genetic variations, the actual concentration of a medication, instead of being 100 milligrams, could be 5 milligrams. And I would give the patient 100, would expect that the 100 will do the job, let's say antidepressant, but the actual dosage would be more like 5 milligrams. And then nobody would know why this patient did not feel better and why he jumped out of the window and committed suicide. And nobody would know this. Now, this genetic aspect is relevant for 30% of the population. Now, such tests were very expensive five, six years ago. Thousands of dollars, only blood tests, etc., and thousands of dollars. Today, it's a simple swab test. Cost about $100, $120, once-in-a-life test. And the prices are cut by half each year. So basically, it's getting a commodity. And if we will open our eyes two, three years from now, everybody will do that. And you actually opened up a very interesting question. And that is that sometimes when something is prescribed, it may not work as expected, but you can't really qualify that as a medication-related error. So one of the, I think that you have raised a very good issue. And the issue is, how would I know what tools do I have? Me as a clinician or a pharmacist, for example, what kind of tools do we have to make sure that the medications that we give do not interact badly with one another or how appropriate are those medications to the patient himself? And when I was uh, looking back, I think it was six or seven years ago, at the various solutions that are out there, because today in the developed world, there is a regulatory necessity to assess drug interactions and appropriateness of safety of medications, at two, basically at two time points. When you, as a clinician, prescribe a medication, when you prescribe it in the electronic health record or etc., or when you dispense, as a pharmacist, for example, when you dispense the medications, you need to assess drug-related problems. Now, when I was doing those practices five, six, seven years ago, I noticed two, three main things. One, there are only four or five such solutions worldwide. And everybody across the world, even today, when you, at the end of the day, go to a drug interaction checker, this or another, or a, a certain solution, at the end of the day, all of them get their data from four or five main databases that exist today. And what I saw was that all current solutions, one by one, are very bad in the following four or five aspects. One, 
they do not know how to personalize their outputs. When they give you an output, an alert that something is problematic, it is very generalized. It's as if, if you go, for example, and, and read a leaflet of a medication, you may think that you're going to die in the next five minutes because each medication, you can, it can cause something bad. I hope you're enjoying today's discussion so far. This discussion is part of a series of discussions that were recorded for the movie Overdose. Interviews with speakers will be published throughout the summer, so make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss them. If you're interested in the documentary about medication safety, find the link in the show notes. Now let's return to today's interview. A lot of decision support systems for drug interactions that are out there at the moment produce too many alerts, causing alert fatigue, and doctors missing the important warnings because they get drowned in the flood of um, all the alerts. So I wonder, you from the clinical perspective, and given that you've got a market overview, can you mention any good solutions that are out there in terms of uh, offering useful decision support? Yeah, that's a question for me because I am biased. <laughs> Anything Explain. that you can say about um, the market research is useful. I would say such the following. All solutions that I am aware of anywhere in the world lack four or five basic things. One, they do not know how to personalize the alerting. They give very generic alerts. All the time, they flood the clinicians with alerts, cause alert fatigue, etc., etc. Because of the alert fatigue, bottom line, nobody uses the solutions. And because nobody uses the solutions, they skip from time to time things that they should address and they did not address because they just ignored everything, the solutions. That's one thing. The other thing is the scope of domains that they are able to assess. And I'll try to explain what I mean. When you are going to buy a second-hand car, you often, in various countries, you often go to a designated place and you check the car. And if you have a good way to check the car, meaning you check the engine, you check the electricity of the car, you check the chassis, you check, I don't know, everything that needs to be checked. If you are satisfied, you're saying, I got the right picture, I got the entire picture, I can move on and buy the car. If we are talking about current drug interaction solutions, they know to check only about half of the things that they need to check. And basically what they know today, and people may, many people don't know this. When, I, when we were discussed earlier, we were saying that people at a certain age are starting to get five, six, seven, eight concomitant medications. There is no solution out there besides Signal, which I am responsible for, and, and we may have a, a time to talk about this. There is no solution out there 
that knows to check more than two medications at a time. If you prescribe 10 medications, they check two and then another two. But that's not the real life. The real life is that the patient gets 10 or seven concomitant medications at once. And you need to, to understand what happens between all of them all together. That's one thing. The other thing is all of us eat. We need to understand the effects of food on our medications. Some of us, about 15% of us, smoke. We need to understand the effects of smoking on medications. As I mentioned earlier, 30% of us have a genetic variability that will very distinctively and gratefully change the way medications are handled in the body. And we need to understand this and consider all this. So going back to the car example, if we don't shake everything and I get only a partial picture of what happens to the patient, it's like getting a partial picture of what happens to the car. And that doesn't make any sense. So all current solutions not know how to put together food, genetics, lab results in real time, very fast when the clinician needs this, to put all this, to mix it together and get something out of it. And because of that, you get nonsense alerts. 99% of the alerts that are generated by current solutions are nonsense, are not relevant to the patient that is now in front of the clinician. 99%. There's a, in Israel, there's a, it's called, sense it probably has similar names in throughout the world this this device and you put to newly born babies you put under the bed and it it makes noises every time it seems like the baby stops breathing okay now just imagine you have that all the time 20 times per minute makes those uh, warning signs what would you do you will turn it off. And then when you really need it, it will be turned off. And this is what happens with current solutions. So the reason we designed Signal is because there's no solution out there, nothing that does what, in my view, should be an ideal solution. And this is why we designed uh, Signal. Is one thing that I wonder we mentioned that you talked in the psychiatric department and the challenge in the mental health setting is that it's a little bit more complex in terms of medications compared to other sectors due to various reasons. It's a generalized statement, but there are some specifics of psychiatric drugs that makes them quote unquote dangerous. So if we just go a step back, knowing that medication errors do happen despite alerts and everything that's uh, put in the hospital setting. Did you ever see any medication error happening in the clinical practice while you worked? Do you remember any cases that were related to medications during hospitalization?
I can recall, and, I, and I'm thinking loudly, about two typical medication errors that I've experienced. Before I had solutions such as Signal today that could not alert me about the, such an errors. And I'll give you two examples. One of an acute accident, acute problem. For example, there is an antidepressant medication called fluvoxamine. Very well known. It belongs to a family of medications that are called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and fluvoxamine is one of them. Very well known, very practiced antidepressant. Many of the depressed people, when they are depressed, smoke. Much, if you look at the percentage of people that smoke cigarettes in the general population, much more smoke when they are depressed. Because of various reasons, let's not go into them right now. Now, back then, I recall a certain case when a patient on fluvoxamine got fluvoxamine. Can you explain what the medication is? Fluvoxamine is, is an anti is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Basically, what it does, it raises the serum levels of a neurotransmitter called serotonin, and this is the by that it helps the depression. In, in depressed people, um, it's very simplistic what I'm saying now, but in depressed people, the level of serotonin is lower than desired. And you need to increase the level of serotonin. And this is what fluvoxamine does. So I gave, this is a true example, I gave a patient fluvoxamine. Remember, closed psychiatric ward, difficult patients, many of them are suicidal, gave them fluvoxamine, they smoke, and they jump out of the window on, on their first vacation home and committed suicide. And nobody understood why. From the physiological point of view, from this patient got a antidepressive, it sounds, sometimes is tricky to understand if the patient is totally out of the depression or only partially out of the depression. And this patient committed suicide. Now, only in the past years, when we designed and, and, and built Signal, I understood something very special, very unique, that smoking decreases the concentration, the serum levels of fluvoxamine, the antidepressant, by about 80%. So if you give 100 milligrams of fluvoxamine to a patient, the actual dose that you give them, because the patient smokes, is more like 20%, 20 milligrams. So basically you don't give them the medication. And then he jumps out of the window and commits suicide. And this is something that current solutions do not know how to bring in front of the clinician. Nobody back then knew 
how to deal with it. Nobody had the slightest idea that this can happen. So this is one example of an acute, acute problem that happened. I'll give you another example. A more chronic problem, which I'm absolutely sure that in each country that people practice in or listen to us now, there are hundreds of thousands of people that suffer from what I'm going to tell you for years. Many of the psychiatric patients, not only psychiatrics, also neurologic patients, etc., get a medication called carbamazepine. Carbamazepine is a very unique medication. It was originally produced as an anti-epileptic medication many years ago. And as time passed, it proved to be also what we call in psychiatry a mood stabilizer. It's a medication that, bottom line, makes your mood better. So a lot of psychiatric patients, a lot of neurologic patients, get carbamazepine. Now, if you're old enough, many of them are hyperlipidemic. So they are getting simvastatin. Simvastatin is an anti... It's a medication that is given for hyperlipidemic people. What doctors don't know is that carbamazepine decreases the serum levels of simvastatin by 75%. Now, simvastatin is a chronic medication. You take it for years and you expect to get results. And if you don't get, you raise the dosage and raise the dosage. But it's not from today to tomorrow. It takes years. Now, if you give this patient carbamazepine, for all those years, the actual levels of simvastatin are none, or close to zero. And it takes months and sometimes years for the clinician to understand this. And during those months and years, the damages that happen to the patient are such that in, in many cases are irreversible. And you need solutions to make the clinicians aware of such situations in real time when they prescribe. Oh, since you mentioned that, we know that science is progressing very rapidly with the number of research papers that are out there, new findings that also enable solutions like figuring out what's the connection between the genetic profile and the response to medications. And there's also biomarkers that can be detected in the blood, for example, to distinguish between depression and bipolar disorder. So I guess, uh, again, the question is, what are the solutions that are actually already used in the clinical practice for more precise prescribing? Are all these things the use of pharmacogenomics for prescribing, the use of biomarkers in the blood for better prescribing. How much of these are just research paper studies and how much of them are actually already used in the clinical practice? Can you make any comparisons uh, given the way you worked 
as a psychiatrist and the way psychiatrists can work today. Yeah. I, I would, when looking into pharmacogenomics or pharmacogenetics in medicine, and then specifically in psychiatry, I think there are two things that needs to be said and understood. One, there is the pharmacogenetics or the pharmacogenetics that deals with various biomarkers that intend to give a more accurate prognosis or response to therapy. These biomarkers have been tested, or various such biomarkers have been tested in the past 10, 20 years. The bottom line is that their validity is questionable. And when I'm saying questionable, it's due to two things. One, the yield that they give you as a clinician and the patient is minimal, if at all. So, for example, if you get a biomarker that tells you, you may respond better to drug A versus drug B, but the better response is 5% better. Now... Is that valid? Is that worth the money that it cost? Etc. Etc. That's one thing. The other thing, that's one kind of, of genetics. The other kind is what we do, for example, with signal. This is gen the genetics of the enzymes that govern the level of activity of the enzymes that metabolizes our medications. As I mentioned, each of our, medi oh, many of our very important, many of our clinically important medications are metabolized, are broken down in the body, but by various enzymes. This is, by the way, why we take a medication every day, because if it was not broken down or metabolized, we would take it once and it will be good forever. But that's not the case. The reason we take medications each day or every, twice a day, etc., is because they are metabolized and are thrown away from our body. So the genetics governing the level of activity of those specific enzymes that break down our medications is one of the more validated, accurate methods in medicine. And unlike those biomarkers that we mentioned earlier, which are ambivalent, their outputs are ambivalent, the yield is problematic, they cost a lot of money, the validity of the enzymes, the genetics that, that check the activities of these enzymes is very much validated and, and corroborated in many studies. And this is the future of personalized pharmacogenetics in, in psychiatry and, in the, in, in, and for the entire medic, medical world. No, no doubt about this. A follow-up question there around genetics. We, I think when the, um, the whole genome project started, there was this hope that 
once it's gonna be finished we're gonna know everything everything's gonna be clear and because you have the genetic picture we're going to be able to cure diseases completely however there's the epigenetic factors the fact that over time when we get old things deteriorate change we may be prone for something based on our primary genetic design but there's external factors that impact if something in the gene is going to get activated or not so how does the plethora of all the factors that impact genetics and our health how does that impact the accuracy of using pharmacogenomics for prescribing for example i guess in the in a very simple term does the genetic profile of an individual change to the extent that you basically need to do genetic sequencing for the purpose of prescribing more than just once when you're 20 then when you're 40 when you're 60 does it differ the genetics yes the genetics that i'm speaking about and the one that we incorporated in signal is a once in a life test swab test once in a life for adults so once you're an adult you do the test you figure out your genetic profile and that's it and from then on until you're 120 years old you can use the results for improving your medications and your accuracy and the appropriateness of your your treatments that's the so maybe just going back a little bit to the clinical practice you mentioned before a case that was so an unfortunate um, event with a medication in a patient but that happened already when the patient left the hospital the suicide i'm referring to the suicide that you mentioned before but what about in the clinical setting uh, are medications for psychiatry quote-unquote safe in the clinical setting so despite the fact that they are high-risk drugs uh, they are given to patients under very tight control so there's less of a chance for a problem with those drugs in the clinical setting so I'm just wondering given that the field of psychiatry can be scary also to some physicians before they get to know it. What are some of the problems or mistakes that can happen on a psychiatric ward because of medications? I think you may talk to the wrong person about the uh, problems of psychiatric medications. And, and I'll try to, Why? to explain I am a firm believer that psychiatric medications are as safe and as useful, if not better, than most other medications. Absolutely, I believe in what I've just said. Just put in mind, for example, the the anti-diabetic medications that people take or the medications that they take for hypertension. Everybody thinks that they are okay. But if you just take 
too much, much of such medications, you can die. From severe hypotension, you can have syncope, you, you can have cardiac arrhythmias, you can fall down and break your neck, or etc., etc. If you take a, a too, too much of a dose of an anti-diabetic, you, you can hurt yourself as well. This seldom or much less happens with psychiatric medications. So the bottom line is, psychiatric medications are by, by no means worse than other medications. They are often much safer medications. I think that the same stigma that people have on psychiatric illnesses, doctors and people have on psychiatric medications. This is absolutely my view. If we turn a little bit to the topic of using medications in the most optimal way as possible and prevent errors or just problems related to medications, which is also what Signal is addressing with offering decision support for more precise prescribing, how do you see in general the role that technology plays in minimizing medication errors? Because most clinicians that I spoke to so far don't even start talking about technology until I ask them about that. They all talk about the environment, the the human factors, the fact that emergency departments are filled with stress. A lot of things is happening. Things are happening fast. And it can very easily happen that the patient gets the wrong drug. From that perspective, what's your view on this? To which extent can technology improve medication safety or prevent patient harm? Well, I, I think that, and, and as you may imagine, because we designed Signal and Signal aimed at challenging all the issues that technology should overcome in order to be usable by clinicians. And the main problems are as follows. First of all, you need to do things fast. Clinicians don't have time anywhere in the world. Not only those that are in the emergency room, those that treat you on an ambulatory care, those that treat you in internal medicine departments, etc. They have five, seven minutes to, to see you each day if you're in hospital or if you're an ambulatory patient, they, they see you every few months, if at all, and, and for five to 10 minutes. And during those five, 10 minutes, they need to do a lot of things. One of them is to address drug interactions. And if you are not able, through technology, to support a very fast and accurate and patient-specific alerting or solution, you will lose the clinician. You need to be fast, meaning in real time. We in Signal do it in quarter of a second, give all our assessments. Two, you need to provide it to the clinician in a way that the clinician can 
understand everything, prioritize and solve things in five to 10 seconds. If all this round cycle of understanding what's the problem, prioritizing the problems and solving them, solving them would take five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you lose the clinicians. So the technology must address all those issues in a way that in 10 seconds, you as a clinician can do the entire cycle, understand, prioritize, and solve. This is another thing that we challenge in Signal and we did it good. So you need to be accurate, you need to be personalized, you need to be fast. And if you as a technology, because physicians don't have time and they don't have the nerves or the patience to, to spend a lot of time. So if you don't bring in such a solution that on top of this is, as we mentioned earlier, assesses all the needed things, the laboratory, the age, the kidney functioning, the genetics, the food, everything that combines the patient. If you don't assess all this and do it fast in half a second, and then enable the clinician to solve everything in five to 10 seconds, you will lose the clinicians. This is the role of technology. So maybe an additional question here, because medication space is very complex and it's perhaps difficult for, to understand for someone who's not um, directly involved in it. So based on everything that you said and the problems that we talked about, like the natural response from the general public, I think, would be, okay, you know exactly what's wrong with decision support systems. Why is there no system yet that would address these issues? And you are on the other side now, so you have a solution that's addressing these things. But from a critical perspective, why do you think or when do you think more useful solutions are going to be available in the clinical practice, more broadly speaking? Maybe to just add to that, decision support systems that exist at the moment that offer alerts and search for drug-to-drug interactions, we have them. We now know that they're not working in order to really help the physicians. They're cumbersome. Now it's time for phase two, coming to the really useful solutions. So when do you think we can expect that on a broader level? I think the technology is, is theoretically there. The fact is that we did it. You need to address various aspects at once. You need to address the user interface. You need to address the response times of the IT solution, the technical response time. You need to address the, as I mentioned, the very large scope of domains, medications, foods, lab results, genetics, etc., etc. And on top of this, you need to address something that we haven't discussed yet. You need to deal with machine learning or artificial intelligence logic in order to better fine tune your outputs. There is a limit to 
what we call data-driven outputs, there is a limit to what they can, at the end of the day, generate to the clinician. And if you want to even give a better perspective of what may happen to the patient or may not happen to the patient, you need to embed machine learning technologies, etc. And this is something, by the way, that Signal does as well. And uh, no doubt that future solutions will need to, to basically to put all the things that I've told you to put in one place. Now, this is something that takes time. Even if you want, people, a lot of people ask me if Google tomorrow would want to mimic or copy Signal, would they be able? Because they probably have the money. And I would say no. It's not in a reasonable amount of time. So it it doesn't matter how much time you need. You have how much? Excuse me. How much money you have? You need expertise. You need to do the right researches. You need to go over certain pathways that consume a lot of clinical thoughts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it takes time. And it doesn't matter if you put. $10 million into a solution or a billion dollars into a solution. The billion dollar would take you maybe a little faster, but it will take it will still take you a lot of time. It, it almost sounds like that you're appealing to Google or Amazon to simply buy you. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> it depends on the price. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a lot about how the prescribing process looks like from the the doctor's perspective but the way that prescribing is improved today is with the inclusion of clinical pharmacists into the process of prescribing and checking what was prescribed, is the dose correct? So adding their knowledge into the mix. How do you see the role of clinical pharmacists in reducing medication errors? Incredibly important role. From my experience, many years of experience, I've noticed two things. One, generally speaking, pharmacists are more curious and more knowledgeable about medication problems and various aspects of drug interactions than clinicians. It may sound problematic what I'm saying, but my general perception is exactly that. Generally speaking, pharmacists are more curious and more active in exploring such problems with medications. Two, the modern world is such that physicians are getting less and less accessible to people. People are getting more and more old, more and more sick, more and more medications. The population grows. And the number of clinicians that can be accessed by people 
is getting lower and lower. The bottom line of what I'm saying is, as time passes, more and more people would need assessment of their medications, drug interactions, etc. But more and more people will be less accessible to clinicians. And this brings us to the point where, and I see such trends coming up in many countries that more and more roles are slowly and smartly moving from a clinician, from a physician to the pharmacist. So my view is because at the end of the day, whatever the clinician prescribes, the pharmacist dispense. And when you dispense, you have a chance to check things or prior to dispensing. And because there are less and less available clinicians, the role of the pharmacist would just grow and grow as time passed. And I see pharmacists doing clinical work in retail pharmacies, in hospitals, more, and taking as much as possible burden of physicians. Absolutely. And they can do it in cases, much better than the, the than the physicians. In that regard, one of the things that I was thinking about was the fact that science is progressing very rapidly and the fact that we've got new amazing therapies that are also very expensive, but are for a specific number of people very uh, successful in sometimes even curing diseases that were uncurable so far. I'm wondering... Is prescribing getting more and more complicated and more and more dangerous without appropriate decision support because there's more options out there? If you just look at diabetes medications, the number of things that doctors can choose from today is vastly different from what was possible 20 years ago. What you're saying is so true, and I'll give you a, uh, <laughs> I'll quote a statement that was said about 250 years ago by Moliere. You probably heard of the French guy. Moliere back then said, which is not absolutely true, but it gives you the right sense. Moliere said that more people are dying from their drugs than from their illnesses. Now, this is not true, but it's, it says something. And taking what Moliere said back then to today is the following. Clinicians and human beings have a certain capacity to understand things. If we had only two medications in the world, two types, that's it, A and B, then probably each one of us, each one of us physicians, when we were, were going to medical school, we would study on those two medications, on their side effect profile, on their drug interaction aspects, etc., etc., and we would know everything on these two. But there are more medications, 
there are thousands of medications and each one of them has hundreds and sometimes thousands of different profiles and side effect profiles, etc., etc. Now the human brain, no matter how genius you are, the human brain cannot assess such information, not in real time and not in any time. And you need computer power to do this for you. It's, it's simple mathematics. And this is why you need clinical decision support systems. And this is why you need them to be, to be as good as we described earlier and to enable them to do everything in a glance because clinicians still don't have time. And so another thing that I wanted to ask you was in 2007, you became the medical director of a pharmaceutical company and a lot of mistakes uh, or errors related to medications happen because of the way medications are either labeled or packed. So, for example, it, there was just a recent case in um, Italy where a, an individual got six doses of the COVID-19 vaccine because the way the vaccines are packed is that one vial contain, contains six doses and you have to dilute one dose into another vial. And when the nurse was giving the, the vaccine to the patient, she thought that it was already diluted. And I've got a book here that's the nursing PDQ medication safety. And you've got an example of two different drugs that look the same. Then you've got, for example, a drug that says that the concentration is 10 milligrams per milliliter. But so the label says 10 milligrams, but the whole vial is actually 22 uh, milliliters. So if you give the full vial to the patient, that's a double dose of, the, of just the label that's written. And it's just, I'm just trying to illustrate why very quickly, very unintentionally, medication admission errors can happen, administration errors can happen. So I, I want to see your perspective as someone who was f uh, in the pharma industry. How is the pharma industry looking at this and is trying to address these issues? Another related uh, challenge here is also you mentioned that there's thousands and thousands of drugs and not only, and obviously it's difficult to think of a new name for a drug. So there's a lot of look-alike and sound-alike drugs when you write them down. And before EHRs, there was a huge problem because prescriptions were illegible. So at least that's solved now. But still, if you have a consultant that's prescribing something to the patient and the junior doctor is actually the one inputting the medication to the system, if he mishears um, what the consultant said the patient needs to get because um, medications that are for very different purposes sound alike, then again, you risk having a gap in the medication safety use. So a pharma perspective, it's a long question, I, but I'm sure... I, w I would say three things. 
the challenges that are needed to be addressed in, in administration errors are needed to be dealt by three different entities. And each one of those entities should contribute, substantially contribute, to trying to eliminate as much as possible administration errors. One is the clinician that prescribes, that puts the name of the medication in the electronic health record, etc. There's a say in Hebrew that people that, that don't do anything never do mistakes as well. And people that do things from time to time do mistakes. And that's the human, that's the human nature. So everybody, once you're a human being, you will do mistakes. But you need to get the right education, the right tools, and the right mindfulness to do as little as mistakes as possible. That's one entity that needs to deal with this, the clinician. The second entity is the pharma company. And the pharma company, and I think that both the pharma company and the regulator, the Ministry of Health in, in that specific country, have a, in most countries, have a similar role. They need to distinguish as much as possible between lookalikes and similar medications. And I'll explain. If you look in, in most countries at the outside packages of the medications, the 100 milligram package of a drug A will almost never resemble the 50 milligram package of drug A. And those two will not resemble the 25 milligram package of the same drug A. To eliminate, to eliminate the propensity for errors for mistakenly taking the 100 milligrams instead of the 25 milligrams, for example. This is in part done by the pharma companies, but there is a big role for that for the regulator, for the FDA, the relevant local Ministry of Health in each country that needs to make sure that packages do not look similar and that drug names do not sound or are written too similarly that will make a lot of people do the mistakes and give one drug instead of the other. So this is a combined role of both the regulators, the pharma companies, and the clinicians. And each one has to put his own efforts into it. Yeah, I, the interesting here also is that clinicians that I spoke to for the purpose of the documentary about medication safety, and they don't, I don't think they know each other. And But what was interesting to me was that two mentioned the example of using the adult strength heparin in the neonatal units. And there's been cases where, in some cases, luckily that wasn't fatal, but there's unfortunately also cases where it was fatal because babies got the strength for an adult. And 
just looking at the examples that I showed before, it's obviously still a challenge. So I don't know, is should we, how can that problem be solved? You mentioned partially that it needs to be pharma and it needs to be regulators. As long as we live, as, as long as we are human, as, as long as we give medications, there will always be errors. The aim is to decrease substantially the number of errors. The three entities that I told you are part of it. The fourth entity is to, as much as possible, to bring in technologies that will help you in doing so. Which signal is one of them, but there might be others. Okay, we've been definitely... I think two, th three, two or three times as long as I thought we would be. So maybe do you have any last remarks in terms of the medication-related safety in the future? And also, one thing that I didn't ask was the medication-related patient safety problem was first mentioned when the To Aries Human report came out, where it became clear that it's a bigger problem than, than people in healthcare thought it was. Now, obviously, already as, with electronic prescribing, some things uh, improved, as I said before, the illegible prescriptions and things like that. But in your view or knowledge, do you see that what, what has changed since 2000 in terms of medication-related patient safety? Has anything changed? I would say a little. <laughs> Things are changing. The, unfortunately, when I'm coming from the iTech universe these days, but I've been used, I've spent a lot of time in, in lower tech environments. The bottom line is that the medical world is transforming and is changing and it's improving, but much slower than other industries. When you look at space industry, car industry, computing industry, etc., etc., they transform and evolve and progress and change much faster than the medical world. The medical world is a more of a rigid, less flexible universe, and for good and for bad. We deal with people's lives, so sometimes it's not that good to run fast, and change fast things. But when you work slow, you, you work slow. That's my two cents. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast or go to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you'll be redirected to the platform of your device. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. 
So if you'd like to explore healthcare more closely from other perspectives as well, go to healthpodcastnetwork.com to search through other shows as well. Stay tuned. <laughs>